Hello everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. This happens to be show number three. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be working through the rest of the information that's contained in Chapter 1 with the idea in mind that at the end of this particular show, we'll have all of Chapter 1 taken care of and possibly even move a little bit into, show, into uh, Chapter 2. A couple things that I wanted to mention to you is where we are right now in, in the uh, actual book. The last time that we met and we talked, one of the things that we talked about, and I'm going to kind of be moving again back and forth between the document camera, but we'll, we'll go, I think where we sort of left off a little bit, and uh, I'm going to move over here for a minute so we make sure that we're all together on this, is uh, we were talking about uh, your sales kit that we had. And uh, I think just to give you a point in time where we were, we were on about page 20. And I think what I was sort of emphasizing in that particular show, or the last show that we had, which would have been show two, is that when you get ready, to go out and meet with a client to either list their home for sale or to uh, show the property, one of the things that you're going to want to do is, and the best way I could describe this is you want to think about the fact that you really, your car or your Humvee or however you get around, I would say everything except for a motorcycle, uh, one of the things that you're going to do is that's kind of going to be your office on wheels. So. What you sort of want to do is visualize yourself that when you go out to meet with clients, either taking them out to show them property or actually get a, link, a listing, that you want to make sure that you have all of your necessary materials, if you will, with you. So I'm just going to kind of touch on this a little bit, and then we'll move forward from there. Some of this stuff makes uh, sort of common sense. Uh, nowadays, you're going to need things like cell phone charger because a lot of times you're going to find out that you're out in an area where the phones have been disconnected uh, because the house is for sale and the people have moved out, so you're going to need to have your cell phone. You're going to need to have things like your laptop computer. And one of the things that I mention now and I'll mention for future classes is that uh, one of the things that a lot of agents are doing today is, is all those forms that they're listing in the textbook that they're showing you things like listing agreements, and purchase offers and addendums and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, years ago, I mean, in reality, you had to have uh, in your car, if you will, a big, huge uh, tub of uh, all these forms that you may possibly need. Well, nowadays, what most people are doing is, is that once you're a member of the California, uh, you know, the Sacramento Association of Realtors, or by very default, you become a member of California Association of Realtors you have the use of a program called WinForms. And what that allows you to do, you can download that program actually from the, uh, from the California Association of Realtors website. And then also you can take and update it with the more current forms. And what's really kind of nice about that is instead of you carrying that around a great big tub of forms with you all over the place, what you can do is if you have your laptop, you're able to just have all those forms right there. You can fire up the old laptop, pull up the form, fill it out if you want to online, and then, which also brings us to the next item there, is that if you did look into the concept of having something like a portable printer, which they mention in here, uh, and those things have come down in, in price considerably, you could actually print out those forms for, you, for yourself with your client. So it's a way that you can reduce the amount of space that you really need to carry stuff with you. You're going to need some other things with you. You're going to be looking at uh, just the idea of looking at this as a checklist and things that you want to add to that. You'll notice that we have market analysis software forms. You'll need things like measuring tapes. Again, they say packet of forms, but notice what I just had said is that including wind forms can be used and downloaded from your laptop, so it's a way for you to save space. Uh, you have multiple listing sheets, buyer's uh, confidential financial status, all these different things that you'll need. Things as simple as uh, I don't think you would ever want to leave your house anymore without having your business cards and any kind of brochures that help promote you or your company. I think you'd want to have a camera with you. And they say Polaroid, but today we were using digital camera. In fact, I was talking about this in another class to say, you know, now you can go out and actually visit a client that wants to sell a house after they've signed all of the agreements that are necessary in the disclosure statements and everything else, you can go around and take all the photographs of the house and you could actually, in reality, be able to leave their house with those photographs completely finished and have the, all the pictures in the houses put up on your website without ever leaving their house. It's very easy to do. That's why we're focusing so much in making sure that you guys know how to use computers. That's the way everybody's doing business today. And 
I mean, if you have the digital camera, you can, you can take the pictures of the front of the house, the bedrooms, the baths, whatever it happens to be, and leave that house and have everything intact when you leave. So it's really a good, a good way. It's also a good way if you're, if you're previewing homes. Like, for example, if you have clients that you're going to be maybe coming in from town, and you're saying to them, listen, you're going to be flying in this Saturday. Uh, why don't I do this? I'll go out. I'll look at some homes. Anything that I see, I'll take some photographs of them, and I'll forward them to you via email. Again, digital cameras are really great because all you really need to do is have a charger and, uh, and the camera with you, and you uh, make sure it's charged up, and you can take the pictures and use them anywhere. So really another important device to have. Pens, pencils, flashlights, signs, all those things. So the concept is you don't want to be out at the client's house and all of a sudden not have something that you need to close that transaction or close that listing. You want to make sure you have everything available with you. Uh, there's a lot of times that you may be working, say, in an area that uh, is a rural area, and uh, maybe the client's house that they want or the property they want to list is maybe 20, 30 miles from your office. If you think if you have to drive all the way back out there again, back to your office to pick up a form or something, and back out there again, you're kind of wasting your time. So this is a way of just saying, do I have all these things with me when I go out to visit the client? A um, couple other things that I wanted to mention that they show in that checklist that are kind of important. Uh, you're going to want to have things such as uh, lock boxes with you. These are things that uh, you're going to be able to put the client's keys in so that other agents will be able to show the property. You're going to want to have things like street maps, bus schedules, all those kinds of things. So the idea in mind, you want to have this thing you want to kind of keep up to date on a regular basis. Uh, I'm going to kind of pull this up and move on to the next uh, thing we're talking here again uh, about uh, uh, different uh, reasons that lead to success uh, with a real estate agent. So I'm going to kind of move on to that on uh, page uh, 22 in the book. And remember, this book, by the way, uh, pretty much we're working with the fifth edition, but, you know, uh, there, there's a good possibility that most of these forms or these documents are fairly much the same in the fourth edition, and hopefully if they ever come out with a sixth edition, they'll be the same. But pretty much most of these checklists and forms, if I'm referring to a page, are, are pretty well standardized without, within the book itself. But what we're really talking about on this page, trying to sum up or finish up this chapter, if you will, this chapter on, sale, on a salesperson, is what kinds of things help or lead you to be successful in the real estate business. So what they do is they list some things, and I'm going to kind of bring them up, and then I'll talk a little bit about them so that you're aware of them. And you kind of have to think about these things, that you either have these attributes or you sort of want to work on developing them. Uh, start off right at the front. Uh, if you are a real estate agent, you have to have the ability to think critically and make sound judgment. Remember, you are the one that people are looking to for advice and experience on real estate. So you're going to have to really be somebody that has some really fairly good listening skills, that you're able to listen to what the clients want, be able to go out and find out whatever information or details you need to know about the transaction, putting all of that together, and then either making the decision or helping the client make the decision on listing, buying, on listing a house for sale, buying a house, or on getting a mortgage, or choosing somebody to do some repair work or something. So you're going to have to be that kind of a person that can kind of think on your feet and think kind of critically and sum up a lot of information fairly quickly. You're going to have to have an interest, uh, definitely, in an advancement towards high, higher financial rewards. You're going to really want to, you know, I mean, that's one of the motiv motivating factors in real estate, if you happen to make what you think is too much money, don't worry about it. Just send it to me. I can always use it as a, use it to buy another motorcycle or something like that. Uh, so don't worry about it. if you make too much money. I'll take it. Uh, you're going to have to wear. You're going to have to wear having an ability to and a willingness to work. In some cases, at least in the beginning, work longer hours and work uh, you know fairly hard. And the reason why is anytime you enter into any kind of new experience or profession. You have to plan on the fact that you are going to have times that you are going to put in longer hours, and some of those longer hours is because you're making, you've made some kind of a mistake or you really haven't thought things through. So you're going to find out the longer you're in the business, probably, and the more proficient you are at doing things, uh, the less time you're going to be expending on things that are going to be correcting mistakes and errors, you know, like, for example, driving out to somebody's house without the right forms or... Uh, 
you know, really taking somebody around and show them property and not really finding out whether they're qualified to buy anything at all. I mean, those are the kinds of mistakes we're talking about that you can help eliminate as you go, as time goes by and you um, and you gain more knowledge and experience. Uh, going down the list right here. Uh, you know, you're just going to have to be a, a lot of these things have to do with just being a people person. You're going to have to have, uh, you know, good negotiating skills, work, work well with clients. Uh, you're going to have to, um, uh, let me see here. You're going to have to be working at building goodwill and contacts by sending out thoughtful notes along the way. Remember that what you're really trying to do when you're in the real estate business is you're building a business. And uh, businesses are not really the value to businesses are not necessarily the real pro real estate that they own or the furniture that they own or the computers that they own in reality it's the what's really a value is the willingness of customers to purchase a product or a service from you and continuously come back or if they're not buying to refer their friends and their relatives to you so in other words, when you get all said and done, you may very well make uh, several hundred million, uh, not several hundred million, but say se sell, several hundred, sell several million dollars worth of real estate and possibly make seventy-five, dollars $200,000 a year in income. But the value of your business is not going to be the fact that you have your computer or your chair or your car. It's really going to be your ability to work at developing a really strong business of clientele that are willing to continuously come back to you for their real estate needs. So you're going to have to be working on that. That's a very important thing. That's why you want to really go the extra mile with working with clients, really helping them out because the people that they're going to refer to you or that they're going to refer to you or the only reason why they're going to refer you any business is because of the fact that they're happy with the services that you've provided them and they feel really comfortable with you. So anyway, we talk a lot about, uh, about this stuff uh, on all the techniques and probably the best way I could say this is to read this list of what it takes to be a successful agent and look at it this way. If you want to be successful, then look at those things that you need to do and make sure that you're doing them or make sure that you find some way of improving or enhancing those things. And this is kind of a little bit funny, but it's true. If you want to be unsuccessful, then pick those things and do the opposite. Uh, I have seen a lot of people, uh, it's kind of interesting that when people are successful at anything, they pretty much have gone out and looked at what other people have done in their life. In other words, when, when you enter the business, you, you look around and you say, which agents are successful. In other words, I don't mean that they tell a good story. I mean that they consistently and constantly on a regular basis produce business. They sell two, three, four homes every single month, month in and month out. They do very, very well. There's months that they sell more, maybe a little less, but they're very consistent. And then take a look at what they do. And you're going to find out that those people are well-disciplined. They are very knowledgeable. They have a unique ability to follow through on all the details that are necessary. In other words, nothing is really too small. They make sure that they really follow through on everything. They, they have a really unique ability to build a good relationship with their clients. They also ask the clients and remind them that, by the way, I am in a business, a service business, and it, what's really helpful is that if you know of anybody else that's in this business, or that's looking for a home or wanting to buy or sell, please let them know that, uh, you know that I'm in the business and that, as far as you're concerned, I do a pretty good job. And the other thing I've seen with a lot of agents, too, uh, all the agents that I've seen that are successful, they are constantly and consistently doing something to make sure that they are out there meeting people that want to buy property. A lot of times people will look at a successful agent and say, oh, the reason why they're successful is because they put in 20 years in this business and they know and they're selling houses to you know, uh, Pat's grandkids now, okay? So they've sold to his kids, they sell to his grandkids, and that's why they're successful. They've just been around a long time. That's very true. But also notice that these people are still doing advertising. They are still contacting their clients. They are still dealing with people and building relationships every single week with new people that they have never met before. So they, they are pretty much have gotten themselves in mind that they, are, that they need to do this in order to keep their business going. And so you kind of want to think about that. Look at those really successful agents and say, how, what are they doing, how are they doing it, and how can I study or get something from them or see how they're doing it that will help me 
improve or be successful in the business. Very, very important technique or, or, or issue. Um, moving from there, I'll just mention a couple things that happen to be on uh, this particular page right here, which is talking basically uh, going on from there about successful agents. And some of this stuff, by the way, keep in mind that it's related to more, not only to an agent, but to a broker, real estate broker. But you have to have empathy with other people. You have to be able to listen and put yourself in their place, how they're feeling, which sometimes can be difficult. Uh, you can have people that, um, that can be very afraid or, 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 or scared of making a decision or afraid of trying something. As an example, I was talking to one of my uh, fellow uh, instructors this morning. We were just talking about people that take introduction to computer science. Brand new, have never really, in some cases, touched a computer. And one of the things that we sort of consistently realized is that usually in the beginning of the class, if we took a class and kind of divided it up into the weeks, we would find that usually about it takes about a class to go for about a third of the semester before people, most of the students, start to really feel comfortable with utilizing the computer. They're afraid. And so the point here is what I'm making out is, is that you may have something that feels very natural to you, and in my case, using a computer. But in, in the case of, say, students, maybe based on their age or their experience, they're afraid. They don't want to try. Uh, they're afraid they're going to make a mistake. They're afraid they're going to blow something up. So it's important, or they're afraid to make that offer on the house, or they're afraid to you know, really you know, uh, apply for that loan. And what you really have to do is empathize with them and try to understand what is it, why are they feeling that way, and what is it that you can do to help. Now, in some cases, maybe you can help. Maybe there are some magic words or something you can do that will help them or assist them in their decision-making process and their ability to buy or sell something. Maybe some cases you can't do anything, or maybe in some cases it's not the right time for them to do that. Uh, I had a person that rented from me for a number of years, and they moved from the Midwest. And they were very absolutely outstanding tenants. They moved from an area in which the homes sold for substantially, substantially less than what they do in California. And their whole idea was, I'm going to move to California. I'm going to live in your house. I'm going to rent it for maybe about six months or a year. And then what's going to happen is then I'm going to be looking for a house to buy. And as soon as I find it, I'm going to go ahead and move out of yours and, and buy that house. And what happened is it took them about four years to do that. And the reason why is every time they went out to look at houses, because of the area that they came from and the houses were so much cheaper, they almost went into what I would call sticker shock. They continuously were, they would apply for a loan. They would look for me for a credit reference, which I said they were excellent because they rented from me. But they just could not bring themselves to make that final decision because they were a little bit leery or a little bit afraid. Now, they finally did buy, but they, some people may not be able to do that right away. So you have to kind of empathize and try to figure out why they are and not pressure them into doing something that is not necessarily good for them. Uh, down to a few more things. Ethics is very, very extremely important. Um, suffice it to say... Um, you need to look at things like having a well-balanced life, uh, family life. It doesn't, you know, if you're a successful real estate agent, a major reason why you are successful is because you're getting the support of your family. And if you are out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week showing property, and you're not, you know, taking, going home and being with the children or going out to games, or you're putting too much effort into your business, you're going to find that, that's going to affect your family life. So, and a lot of people that are in real estate or in business do that. They go too far to the other extreme. So you are going to try to always constantly be trying to figure some way to balance this family life with the real estate business. And, and if you get it working out really well, the best way is, is that you can be available for things like the children's games or, or the ballet show or whatever and build your business around those events that are family events. So it should always still be where the family is the number one thing, and then you build your business around your family so that they understand when you have to be out there on a Sunday that you've put the other time and effort in. So anyway, uh, kind of wanted to make sure that you did that, went through that, and think a lot about it. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about the broker, and uh, we do need to move on down here, uh, broker. I just wanted to mention some things that maybe it's not exactly what the book says, but just to kind of give you uh, an idea. Uh, one of the things is, is to keep in mind that when you are a, let me see if I can get this lined up. Remember that when you first get your license, you are going to be working for a real estate broker. 
You cannot practice real estate on your own with a sales license. You just cannot do that. You have to work for a real estate broker. Uh, you can obtain a license. You can take the exam. You can pass the exam. You can have the license, but you cannot practice real estate without working for a real estate broker. And also keep in mind that it's the broker that actually helps organize, uh, you know, without having people in the real estate business, real estate brokers and salespeople, we would not be able to sell property. All those people that have got their job depends upon the construction business or, you know, a carpenter, electrician, plumber, whatever. They would not have their job if it wasn't for the people that were the developers and the builders and the real estate agents that were actually selling those properties. So it's very, very important that you keep that in mind. The real estate broker is a very integral part of that because they actually organize that and provide those resources to you as a real estate agent. Keep in mind that one of the things that when you are working as an agent that you do have what we call an agency responsibility. Essentially what that means is that your, your client, when they hire you to either help them find property for sale or list the property for sale, one or the other, that you're representing them. The example I like to use a lot of times is, for example, if you take an athlete who plays basketball, football, baseball, or whatever, they usually will talk about their agent. That agent is somebody that they have hired. Their responsibility is to represent their business interests in negotiations for contracts, maybe in for Pepsi commercials, maybe for Coke commercials, maybe for coffee commercials or motorcycle commercials or whatever. That's their job. They represent when, so when you have an agency relationship, it's as if you are talking to the client, but you're talking to an agent who represents the client's interest. That's, what you're, that's the part you're playing in an agency relationship. And it is important that when you are an agent that you do disclose who you are representing. And we'll talk more about that as the time goes. But there are uh, documents that you're going to have the client sign to make them aware that are you representing the seller, are you representing the buyer, or are you representing both. And what I mean by that is, is that if you're sitting out on an open house on Saturday, somebody walks in the door and says to you, um, listen, I love this house. I think it's great. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Can I buy it? <laughs> which is which we, we all wish would happen. What has to happen is you have to make sure that you tell them and you put in writing that you are representing the seller so that they understand that. If they decide that they want to use you, then you are going to be having them sign something and you're going to be representing them as you're going to be the buyer's agent. And you also have to disclose then to both parties that you're representing both the seller and the buyer. And that has to be in writing and it has to be acknowledged by both sides that everybody is aware of who's doing what. Very, very important fact. So I'm going to move from here. Uh, a couple other things uh, that I wanted to mention. Um, if you are a broker, you are going to have something where you're going to be directing and supervising people. Okay? And you are going to have things, for example, you will be spending time when you set your office up developing a policy manual that will cover all of the different details of how the office is going to operate. Procedures like how you're going to handle when you come back with your listings and you want to put them in the multiple listing system, how floor time is going to work, how, uh, how offers are going to be made. Uh, everything that will happen in the office will be in the policy manual. Very important. You also have to have a transaction file, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. And I'm going to go ahead and go over the, fairly quickly this thing called the transaction file. And basically what this amounts to is that it's sort of like a document that you keep in the file folder for each property. Now remember when you are a real estate, a real estate brokerage has to keep the client's files on hand for three years after the transaction. So what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to have some kind of a transaction file that shows whether or not and if you have done certain things on the property so that you can go back and see, in other words, so that you don't miss anything. It's kind of in my way of thinking, mainly because I fly airplanes and I'm a pilot, whenever we fly airplanes we use something like called the checklist. And the concept behind the checklist is the fact that if we do everything on this checklist, prior to us taking off, in other words, make sure we have enough fuel and we have enough oil and, and, you know, and the airplane's in good condition and we've checked everything, that once we get airborne, everything's going to be okay. The airplane's not going to fall out of the ground because of lack of fuel or oil or whatever. So we use these checklists. 
So I kind of come from a framework where I'm used to that kind of a method. You know, I, you know, I write out a list of things that need to be done, and then I check them off as I do them. This is sort of uh, like a transaction file is where you would actually have this stuff in here, and you, as you put it in, you would initial things to make sure that you have been keeping track of what needs to be done. Okay? So you just kind of want to take a look at this, and each agency is probably, brokerage is going to have their own types of checklists that they're going to utilize. The broker is going to have their pre preferred method that they have. They may also have some reasons why they're going to have you do some things because for legal reasons. So they're going to say, you know, our attorney said that we want to have all buyers and sellers sign this form. So they're going to put it in the checklist. In order for you to close this transaction, you must have your client sign this off some kind of a disclosure statement. So anyway, you're going to need to have that kind of a file available to you. Next thing that I want to point out to you that they have here in the book is something called the multiple listing. Um, Multiple listing is, um, I'm not sure when exactly it started, but it's been around for, I've been around the business now for 30 some odd years. And the concept has always been around that, listen, whenever I list a house for sale or a piece of property for sale, the chances of me listing it and at the same time finding a buyer to buy it, it could possibly happen. If I'm the only agent in town, then there's a pretty good possibility that that would happen. But if I'm in a, in a community in which there's a lot of different real estate agents, there's, there's, a, there's a situation where maybe those clients don't know me and they don't maybe want to do business with me. They don't like me, okay, or they, they don't like my company or whatever, or they have developed a relationship with another agent. So the concept of an MLS is I go out, I take a listing, my broker reviews it, says everything is okay, you've done everything correctly. Now I put it into an electronic system called the multiple listing system. In Sacramento area, we have a company that maintains that called MetroList, and they cover basically, if you will, the seven-county area. And some of the counties I know off the top of my head, such as Sacramento, El Dorado, Placer County, Yolo County, or some of the counties that I can think of. And what it essentially is is it's a huge database in which all of this information resides. And what they're attempting to do here is they're showing you an MLS with uh, an MLS, what it would look like, the pictures. And the reason why they say with compensation is the fact the whole concept behind the multiple listing is, is that I have a listing that I want to sell. Probably I don't necessarily have a buyer for it, but if I expose it to all of the other real estate agents in the community, there's a good chance they may have a buyer. And when I put this listing in this multiple listing system, what I'm essentially agreeing to is I'm agreeing to compensate the other broker or the other, actually it's the other broker and the other agent for the sale of that property. So that's all I'm essentially doing here. And what they're trying to do here is just to show you uh, what one of these listings looks like. Uh, I think this is for Southern California. It tells you who the broker is up here, the time. It gives you normally a photograph of the, of the uh, house. Uh, most of the time nowadays you'll see where they'll have uh, not only one photograph but multiple photographs. Um, and then down below, they'll give you uh, additional information about it. And these are, for the lack of a better word, these are fields that are in a database. And so what they're doing is they're giving some stuff in here, like, for example, this property does have RV space, and it shows you how large it is. The reason why you need to know how large it is is that there's different size RVs. Usually most RVs are at least 10 feet wide. Or, I'm sorry, 8 feet wide. Uh, but they're usually, you know, they can be anywhere from 15, 20, 25, 30. I think I've seen some of them as big as long as uh, 40 or 50 feet. So anyway, this is just telling you what size it happens to be. Um, it's uh, it's going down through here. I'm just looking to see if there's anything else. Here's the year that it was built. Uh, if it had sprinkler system, it would say so. Uh, so these are all more or less like categories, and then if it has it, it'll tell you that it does. This is just telling you down here the points or the financing that the uh, person is willing to go along with. Okay, So anyway, this just gives you a general idea of what you're going to find out. By the way, this same information, at least from a consumer stand standpoint, is available at a website called uh, HTTP, uh, you know, the regular website, www.ca.realtor.org, and it's also available, I think it's .org, and if you leave out the CA and just go realtor.org, it's available for anywhere in the United States that you'll see the same information. Um, 
on properties that are listed in the MLS system. That's mainly for consumers to have, though. Um, next thing that they talk about is something here called commissions. Um, remember, and that's um, remember that commissions, the the uh, standardized type of a commission that we usually see on single-family homes is six percent. Uh, you may very well find out that if you're in the, uh, in the land business that they're actually going to pay you a higher commission. Mainly the reason why is because the the, it's more difficult to sell land than it is a home. Remember that commissions are negotiable. And in some cases, if the commissions get fairly large, they may actually go, as the books talks about here, they may actually go on a graduated basis. In other words, they may say, okay, we'll pay you 6% for the first $500,000 price of the property and then what we'll do is we'll give you a little bit less on the remaining part. The reason why is because some of these transactions get to be fairly large and you start talking about millions and millions of dollars and the, the person that's working with you know that you're listing the property for sale says you know wait a minute you know I you know I need you know all my money all my profits going away in commission so it's a way for you to if you will to adjust the commission as the price of the property goes higher or lower. Okay. And you will find some agents are willing to, um, for example, an agent, it's not uncommon here in the Sacramento area for an agent to say to you something like the commission on your property is 6%. That means that if I, find, if I list your property for sale and another company, another company, uh, if I work for Lion and I list your house for sale and Colwell Banker sells it, then we're going to be splitting the commission 50-50. So if the house sold for... Uh, make it simple, $100,000, it means one real estate broker uh, whose line gets 3000 and the other company, which is Colwell Banker, gets 3000 and then you split that that the companies get based on your relationship you have with the, uh, with the broker. So one, one agent may get 50-50. In other words, they get 1500 the broker gets 1500 You may have somebody else over here that maybe is on a 70-30 split, so they get a different percentage. So anyway, kind of keep that in mind that there are differences in the percentages of commission. Um, I'm going down through here, and uh, this is talking now, basically this last part of this chapter is talking about locating a brokerage firm. And so what they're trying to do is to say, if you are actually going to be going into the business and opening up a real estate brokerage, there are some things that you basically need to keep in mind. And this essentially works for any business that you would open. You need to have this set of checklists to work with. First of all, if you're going to get started in business, the first thing you need to do is get all of the necessary appropriate licenses. And that first one starts out by getting a real estate broker's license. Remember, if you're going to have your own business, whether you're a single individual or you're going to have multiple agents work for you, you have to have a broker's license, which means that you have to normally, not normally, but usually you're going to have to have real estate uh, principles, real estate practice. You're going to have to have uh, some other core courses that you're going to have, and it's listed in, uh, I believe it's in your book near the end of the uh, chapter. It's also on the Department of Real Estate website, and we'll talk about that as classes go by of what courses you're required to have. Then you have to sit the exam, pass it to get your broker's license. Once you have your broker's license, now you and all the pa appropriate paperwork is taken care of. Now you are authorized then to employ um, agents, sales agents, to work for you. Okay, so you need to have that taken care of. You need to get any kind of capital. Capital means you may need to borrow some money to go in business to get the copy machine, to get the card, to get the computer, whatever it is. So we're talking about you may need to get capital in order for you to be in business. Uh, money, loans. Uh, next thing that's important that you need to think about is uh, the location where you're actually going to have your business operate from. And some people feel, you're going to see that a lot, most real estate offices are usually located in some form of a shopping center or a freestanding building. There are certain locations, like if you go down to Monterey, California, or you go down to, uh, for example, um, I'm trying to think, not Monterey, I'm thinking, uh, I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, if you go down in that area, um, you'll see where there will be real estate offices that will actually have pictures of houses that will be on the front window. And what's going to happen is that they're counting a lot on getting, especially like in, in, a, in a resort area, they're counting a lot on getting their business from people walking up and down the streets that are there on the weekend visiting. 
So uh, Car I'm thinking about Carmel, Carmel by the sea. If you go down, there's a street down there called Ocean, I think it's Ocean Avenue. And if you walk down that street, you will see these real estate offices that will have houses. In fact, they're kind of neat to look at, houses for sale that are usually beach houses. And what they're hoping to do is by having their office located near those retail shops, people will walk up and down, see those houses for sale, and hopefully come in and, and, and want to buy them. Of course, those houses down there are not cheap. You know, we're talking about something that are millions of dollars, but the concept is get as many people that are down there visiting to walk past and hopefully expose it to the most amount of people. So location does become important. Uh, choosing a building, there's a lot to be talked about in choosing a building. I mean, there's a lot of things that buildings are providing today, uh, especially from uh, the Internet or electronic standpoint. Uh, if you look at a lot of buildings that are being leased today, People that are leasing them are concerned about things. Do they have access? Do they have cabling already in the offices that they can network their computer? Uh, do they have access to uh, satellite, um, you know, TV? Is there a lot of stuff? So you may really be looking at the infrastructure or the structure of the building itself to see if it, if it has that capability of providing all of those services to you. Uh, you're going to have to get something called the business license. That's very important. You're also going to have to be, uh, be going through what we call a publishing to say how you're going to be doing business, like Pat Hogarty Realty, for example. You're going to have to have something, you're going to have to have your telephone system installed. Now, none of these things are cheap. I mean, you're making a financial commitment that you're going to be in this business and you're going to be employing these agents. So you also have to keep in mind that you have probably yourself been in business for a long period of time. The reason why you're doing this is because it's your personal philosophy that you have discovered that you think you have a better way of doing things. And so when you do this, you're going to be putting this office together. You're going to be putting a lot of resources out, like a telephone system, copy machines, computers, hiring people. So it's opening a business. Okay? So you have to have the telephone installed. You'll have to set up something called a trust account for you to keep your client's money. Remember, you cannot commingle your money with your client's money. You have to have it in a trust account that will be, uh, without notice uh, from the Department of Real Estate, ha come in and actually audit that to make sure that you are doing what you say you're supposed to be doing with those trust accounts. Uh, you're going to have to be doing things like office, uh, office supplies, arranging for newspaper credit, you know, so that you're... Uh, so that you can call up and put the ad in there and have some method of being able to get billed for that advertising or maybe your agents have that ability to do that. Uh, you're going to have to obtain office equipment, hire a receptionist, create a policy manual, all those things you're going to have to do if you want to open up your own business. So that's just a list of things. Okay. Um, the next thing they talk about is the forms of how to do business. And basically, the way I see it that you can look at it is essentially three different ways. The first way that you would do it is what we call a sole proprietor. That means that you, it's just an extension of yourself. It's like as if you had decided to go into any other kind of business. Maybe I did, and I said, I'm going to go into the Pat Hogarty roofing business. I'm the owner of the business. It's my business. I have no partners. I have no corporations, no companies. When you do this, you are going to want to get the advice of an attorney when you do this. The reason why is because as a sole proprietor, it's the easiest form of creating a business. You are in charge. You are the boss. Uh, you don't have to get anybody's permission to do anything uh, except for maybe your family. Uh, there's very little paperwork in relation to the other types of forms of business. And um, it's easy to do. Most people can do it. You can go into business fairly easily, in as, I get, as I said, as in relation to how difficult it is in some of the other ones. The second way that you can do it is by forming what we call a partnership. A partnership is typically, the concept behind that is, is that you are going to go in business with either another individual or a number of other individuals. And the reason why you're going to do that is because you have realized, after discussing this with other people, that there are skills that they possess and there are skills that you possess. And that if either one of you tried to do this on your own, you would probably find out that it would be a difficult thing for you to do. But by both of you going together, it's a lot easier. For example, you may find out that if you're going to go in the real estate business that you are very good at getting listings, you are very good at selling property, you're very good at meeting with clients, you're maybe even very good you're good at all that kind of sales, sales stuff. 
But one of the attributes that you're terrible at and you have no interest at is that the, on the management side, you don't really want to get any excitement out of taking care of the books. You really don't want to get involved in the hiring of, of the agents. Maybe you want to do the training, but you don't want to go, go through that process of the actual hiring, or you don't want to be advertising and have them come in. You don't care. You, uh, things like um, finding out why you got overcharged by PG&E for your electrical bill is something that doesn't interest you. But there are people you can have a partner where that stuff, hey, that's really important. They like doing that stuff, but they're not the kind that likes to go out and, and, and find listings. When you take you, two of you separately, you would, you would do really well at getting listings, but you would be, you'd be losing money because you could never figure out where the heck it was going. On the other pers way, person could be doing really well at figuring where the money is going, but they can't get any listings. But if you put the two of you together, you do really well. That's the concept behind it. In a partnership, again, this is something you want to sit down with an attorney. You want to get advice. You want to be thinking about how you're forming the partnership, how you're going to handle the expenses, what happens if each person, either one of you, gets sick. What happens if one of the people happens to die? What ha how are you going to resolve issues? Like, for example, if you get into a disagreement between the two of you, how are you going to resolve that? Are you going to go ahead and hire your attorneys and go to, go to war in court? Are you going to get a mediator or, or somebody to help you with figuring out what's going to go, uh, happen? So that's the idea of a partnership. You're bringing skills together of two people, different types of skills, that when you put them together, you have a synergy where 2 plus 2 does not equal 4, it equals 5 or 6. That's the idea behind it. Uh, and you're also going to have to look at that in relation to things like income taxes. Uh, all those things are going to have to be considered when you're forming the kind of business. The last type of business, as far as an entity goes, is something called a corporation. A corporation, again, you're getting advice on how to do this from an attorney. You're trying to do some things that you're trying to do this in, in a way that um, uh, makes sense. One of the things that you're usually trying to do is you're trying to limit the uh, liability that the owners have. So you're trying to do something to help protect your own personal assets. One thing I want to make sure I mention to you that if you are operating as a corporation or you believe you are operating as a corporation, you better make darn sure that you do everything that is required. What they don't, you don't want to be doing things like taking income tax deductions or, uh, or, or thinking that it's going to protect your personal assets when you find out you haven't had things that show that you are conducting your day-to-day activities as a corporation. In other words, you need to have certain people that are appointed as president, vice president, chief operating officer. You have to have meetings. You have to have minutes to meetings. You have to have documentation to show that you actually are operating as a corporation. Very, very important. The second thing is, is that when you own a corporation, it's easier to transfer interest because what you have is you have a formal financial statement, and you also have things called shares of stock. So I could, for example, have a corporation in which maybe I have, um, you know, uh, I have, say, 1,000 shares of stock, and I can have different so um, proportions of ownership based on the amount of shares of stock that some individual owns. So I could have, for example, if I'm an owner, maybe I own 500 stocks. I could have a couple other owners or other agents or somebody that own maybe uh, 100 shares of stock, or I have an investor that owns shares of stock. So keep in mind that the shares of stock, what I'm trying to get through is how you show that you actually have an ownership in this company. Um, a corporation, by the way, happens to be like an entity. It's like a human being. What that essentially means is that it does not die. Uh, so if you die, the corporation continues to exist beyond your death. Okay, very important. Also, you need to be aware of there's certain types of tax benefits or tax advantages or tax disadvantages, however you want to look at them. Again, in order for you to make sure that you are taking a wearable or utilizing this and doing it correctly, you would want to read how a corporation is organized. You want to make sure that you sit down with an attorney, you drew up all the appropriate documentation that you registered, uh, that you uh, had minutes to meetings, that you were doing everything according to what the law requires you to do. So somebody wouldn't come back and say, you may think you're a corporation, we're going to go after your house anyway, because in reality you weren't operating like a corporation. Okay, so keep that in mind. Uh, last part of this deals with something called record keeping. And what we're really talking about with record keeping is this, is that you are going to find out that you 
if you are in this business for no other reason, you are at least, as a minimum, going to have two types of accounts. If it's a brokerage business, you are going to have an account in which you are going to do, um, you're going to be utilizing that to t pay for your daily, day-to-day -day types of business expenses. So, for example, you're going, that's, uh, this, this account's going to have a checkbook. I'm talking about a regular business account in which you're going to pay for things like the copy machine, the lease uh, on the building, uh, you're going to pay for the phone system, you're going to pay for all of your day-to-day -day activities that you're going to be utilizing. That is the account. That's the business account. When you receive money that is your commission, your final commission that you have been paid on the sale of property, this is the account that that's going to get deposited in. Okay, That's your business account. You're also going to have to have another account called a trust account. And a trust account is money that you cannot commingle the money. This money, what goes there is that you have, for example, you have a client and it's Saturday night. You're sitting there and uh, you just received an offer on a piece of property uh, on a listing that you had. Your client that owns the property is extremely excited. They say, this is exactly what I want. I want to sell my house. The buyer has attached a check. The check has been made out to your company, which might be ABC Company or Pat Hogarty's Real Estate Company. What you have to do is you're the agent. As you go back, once all the appropriate paperwork is signed and everything is done, you have to deposit that check, and that check gets deposited if you're using a trust account in that trust account. It's given to your broker, and if you are the broker, it gets put into that trust account. This account, you cannot commingle money. You cannot take that money out of that account and use that money to pay for your copy machine. You cannot pay the rent with it. That's called commingling. You can't convert the money either. Conversion is literally stealing. It's like taking a client's deposit and using that to buy a new car. No, you can't do that either. This account, this is a trust account, is established and has to follow the guidelines of the law and also be able to withstand audits by the Department of Real Estate. That means at any time, anywhere, they can walk in the front door and say, I need to see your trust account. You have got to give them the records, and they should be able to go right through there and audit that thing and make sure that you're not doing anything that violates the law. Very, very important that you do that. Um, before I show you what that account looks like, I wanted to point out one other thing that they have here in the book. It says sales records keep for three years. Okay. You need to have that because it's going to be surprising that if you have any problems or issues that would come up, maybe six months or a year later, you're going to have where you're going to have to go back, pull that file out. Remember, you're going to have a log in that file that's going to show when you had the different kinds of contracts, addendums to agreements, pest control reports, all those things are going to be kept in that file. You have to hold on to those records for three years. You have to. Okay. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to kind of show you, let me see the last little part right here, which is um, this, which is an example of a trust account. Now, you are going to also find out if you're in the business that you may find out that your broker may very well say to you, listen, when you get a deposit for a client, why don't you just have them make it out to the escrow company and deposit the check and the fees and the funds with the escrow company. And maybe the broker, the reason why they do that is they say, you know what, it's not worth the hassle and the headache of keeping that trust account up. And it's a lot easier for me to just get that money and put it on deposit with the escrow company. But anyway, if you have this kind of an account, you're going to have to put in this account, for example, the name of the broker, their address. Notice that the title to this, let me get this right, it says, uh, trust bank account recorded for all trans uh, for all trust fund deposited and withdrawn. So any money that's deposited in this form and any money that's withdrawn is here. You're going to have to have, for example, the name. I'll blow this up a little bit here so we can see it on TV at home. On the left-hand side, we're going to have to put things on here like the date. In, this, in our case, if it was today's date, the date. Who the money was received from? Was it received in the form of a check or cash? What was the purpose? Was it to buy a home? Was it for rent? What, what was the purpose of the money? That's what we're going to put here. Then the next thing is, is remember, we, anytime we do things, we're not going to simultaneously add and take money away. So if typically we're going to finish out this line and we're either going to deposit money or we're going to withdraw money. If we're going to deposit it, then we would fill S out, we put the amount amount over here, and we would put the balance that we would have. If we're going to withdraw money, it's the same situation. We would put the name of the person here, 
the check number we wrote from our trust account and who it was to. So, for example, it would be, uh, uh, it might be something like Pat, it was written to Pat Hogarty, check number 12345 for uh, whatever it happens to be for a return of deposit, uh, for return of rent, whatever I'm having to do with that. I need to put down what that is. I need to put down the amount and I need to put down how much is left, the balance. So naturally, if I'm putting money in, the balance is going up. If I'm taking money out, it's going away. And so I think, and I would always have to go back and check with the, uh, the law, but you are allowed to keep a very small amount of money in this account. I want to say it's maybe a couple hundred dollars. And the only purpose of that money is to basically pay for the bank fees to maintain the account. So for example, you would maybe have a couple hundred dollars in there with the whole idea in mind is that that's to pay the $25 or $30 a month fee to the bank for maintaining the checking account or the banking account or maybe to pay for checks or anything else. That's the only reason why you would have that money in there. And I can't overemphasize how important it is for you to follow whatever the guidelines are. Whatever the broker wants you to do, you need to make sure you're following the rules. And if you're the broker, you need to make sure that your agents are following the rules and they're keeping this account up to date. You do not want to violate any of this because otherwise you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble and it can be just nothing but a big headache. It's easier to just follow the rules. Um, after that, uh, they have a couple other things. They talk about files. They say um, all files must remain in the office. Agents should copy permanent, uh, pertinent information for their own use of the file uh, out of the office, meaning the file... Remember, whenever you have a listing or a transaction, that is really the property of the broker. And those files should be maintained in the office. Uh, you should not have where somebody takes a file, an entire file out of the office, goes in to get a cup of coffee at a coffee house, and comes out and finds out that their files, files with all that original documentation is gone. You don't want to do that. What you want to do is you want that maintained in a very safe, secure place within the office. If the agent needs or somebody needs a copy of some, for example, if you get a termite report back and the client needs a copy of the termite report, then one should go in that file folder and then a copy should go to the client. Or if, or if the agent is maintaining some stuff they want to show to the client, like a preliminary title report or a home inspection report, you, you're going to make a copy and take it with you. The original, whatever you got, stays in that file folder so that nothing happens to it. Nothing happens to that folder because all this, these folders start out with maybe a little phone message. And by the end of the transaction, they can be, you know, maybe an inch or two thick with all the different kinds of reports, files, and documentation that's necessary to be in there. I've seen file folders get to be really, really huge with, uh, especially if you're dealing with commercial property and you're having copies of leases and copies of uh, all kinds of other information, you just need to keep that in a safe, secure place. Um, down below it says uh, computer files, the same way uh, you should, uh, with paper, simply and easy to access, always back up computer files periodically and save them to disk and CD and DVD. <coughs> Again, for those of us that maybe are not very aware of, of the use of computers, a lot of that documentation that we have is now done electronically. And what we realistically want to do is with our systems, we want to have an area on our computer. I don't care if it's a laptop or it's a home computer or it's an office computer or whatever. We want to have an area on that computer, a file folder, in which we keep the important correspondence. And we want to make sure that we back that up. And when we say back it up, we want, we're want we talking about not only backing it up, but putting it in a safe location. And if you really take it to this furthest extent with a lot of computer people, you're talking about taking it off site. There's a whole backup rhythm that you go through to make sure that, hey, listen, if the building burned down tomorrow, all of that electronic media is put in a safe location that we could retrieve and rebuild those files. And what's really important about that, most people don't realize, is that if your building did burn down and get flooded or something happened, your insurance would most likely help you buy another computer. But your insurance is not going to help recreate those files, those letters, those, all that cars, those databases, those contact lists that you've done. So you want to back all that up. And it's actually recently... In the last year or two, it's gotten fairly easily. You can back up those files to a portable um, hard drive and take it with you. But you kind of want to keep that in mind. You want to do that. Um, it says all closed and pending sales must be reported to the local association of realtors. With all that essentially means is this. 
If you're working in having listing, listings in the multiple listing system, you always need to make sure that, that the information that has been in there and being provided to your fellow agents is always accurate and up to date. And what that means is that if you have received an offer last night and the client, your, the person that owns the property has accepted that offer, has accepted it, says, yes, I, I will take that house. That means that one of the activities that you have to do as a real estate agent when you go back is you have to change the status of that listing in the multiple listing system from just that is for sale to something called pending sale. So you need to make sure so that you don't have other agents that are going out and showing the property and writing offers on something only to find out that it's already sold. And that you also need to make sure that when it is sold that you do whatever is necessary to take that file out of the active system showing that it's not pending or anything, it is completely sold and now it's, if you will, archived, put away, it's done, it's finished, and it's, it's just historical information. You need to make sure that's done. They want to make sure that that's up-to-date and accurate. And I think, in some cases, I am not, I could not swear to you for sure, but I believe if you don't do that, and, or if you're a violator of that, if you don't do that on a regular basis, what you're going to do is you're going to find out that, uh, that uh, the uh, board of realtors or the company will actually fine you because they expect you to do that. Very, very important. Last couple things I want to mention to you, and I'll mention in this chapter here, which is the end of, uh, if you will, chapter one. At the end of each one of these chapters is something called the chapter summary. I find it really helpful, uh, and I do this myself personally whenever I'm reading uh, any kind of textbook or anything like that. It's always a good idea at the end uh, to actually read this to make sure that I've, it's like a brief synopsis of what we covered in the chapter to make sure that I understood everything. In fact, in some cases, what I will do is the opposite. I will sometimes read these ahead of time to see what the chapter is about to get a brief synopsis to say, it's kind of like a detailed, if you do it in the reverse thing, it's sort of a detailed way of saying this is what I'm going to be learning when I actually read this particular chapter. So keep in mind, you really kind of want to do this in the end to help prepare yourself. And then the last thing, I think there's two other things in here where I kind of want to reiterate to you. Number one is this issue of key terms. Remember, we are in these beginning real estate classes. There are a lot of terms that we're throwing out at you. I'm going to kind of blow these up. Um, you know, commingling, conversion, cooperative sales, um, dual agency, all those things. So you kind of want to look at these terms at the end and say, did I really understand what that term was? Do I need to necessarily go back there and look that term back up and make sure I realistically understand that? Because what you're going to find out is people are going to start using these terms during a normal discussion. And so you kind of really want to know what those definitions are and what they really mean. And very important. And then the last thing in the page, and probably the last time I'll ever do this, is I want to show you um, is at the end of the um, chapter is what we call chapter quiz. And what you're really going to want to do is take the time, without peeking, to go through these questions, answer them, and then after you answer them, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to put down what you believe the answer is. And then the other thing I want to mention to you is at the bottom of the last page, they'll actually be showing you what the answers are. So you have a way of checking. They're like this, but if you turn this over, you'll actually see these happen to be the answers. So you want to do when you're all said and done is to check and to see if you're correct. But don't peek ahead of time. With that, I'd like to thank you very much for coming. And we will see you the next time when we have show. If this was show three, it'll be show number four. Thanks again for coming. We'll see you back here the next time.